Praise God for his resurrection. We're thankful for the passage of scripture that James read earlier this morning. Covering the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. This is why we are here. If it were not for a four day period of time in history about 2,000 years ago. We would be perhaps gathering together uh, to memorialize uh, a man who stood out among his peers. Did some great things but uh, that's it. He's dead. He's gone. We ought to be like him. We have many such men we think about through the times of history. Presidents, uh, people have gone before us in religious uh, positions, in political positions. But this is so much different. This is completely different. What we get to celebrate. We're here, sometimes we gather together as friends. Uh, we gather together for social events. Uh, sometimes out of habit. Some of you come this morning out of habit. There are other gatherings that we do. But if it were not for the fact that Jesus Christ 2,000 years ago was crucified. He was crucified until he was literally dead. And then his lifeless corpse was buried in a stone tomb. And then resurrected from death to life. This whole celebration would be a meaningless mythical hoax. And it would be far more than that. It would be hopelessness. It would be pointless. But there is a God-given purpose in reading what we have this morning. And the scriptures are so important for us. We do not depend upon orally transmitted tradition handed down over the centuries. We depend upon the written word of God. And it is priceless. It is powerful. It changes men's lives. In Romans chapter 15 verse 4 we read, For whatever was written in earlier times was written for our instruction. So that through perseverance and the encouragement of the scriptures we might have hope. And we do have hope. So let us carefully examine the facts and details that are laid out this morning. So that we can have hope in a world that has gone mad. I talk with people so often now. And everything is falling apart and going crazy. Do we have hope? Is there a constancy in the midst of this? There is. And that is what we have this morning to examine. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this most miraculous, powerful story, this account, a literal recording of what took place. Lord, it is an amazing thing to think of you, Adonai, Yahweh, the creator of the entire earth, Barah. This God would act in such a way as what we read this morning. Lord, give us understanding Lord, inspire us, fill us, strengthen us, give us hope, but convict us, Father. Break us, make us to be your men and women. Refresh us this morning with your word, with this story, this account we we look at many, many times through the year, but especially on this time. Lord, feed us, please, through your Holy Spirit. You know the myriad weaknesses of my own life, of my own tongue, of, of my abilities. But your spirit is not bound by that. It is not limited by me. So Lord, speak through your word and lead us nearer to you. Amen. We begin with the the arrest of Christ. And we've been looking at that at Mark 
for a while now. Jesus had been arrested after praying with great intensity. He was agonizing. He was wrestling, so to speak, in prayer. It was in the Gethsemane Garden on the northeast edge of the city of Jerusalem near the Mount of Olives. And there he was roughly arrested by an angry mob. Matthew records that it was a great multitude with swords and clubs and they came from the chief priests and the elders of the people. John adds that along with weapons they are carrying lanterns and torches. Now who were the specific members of a mob like this? Of a mob that comes at the edge of town in the dark of night armed with clubs and swords to arrest Jesus. Who are they? Well Luke informs us that they were the respectable people. They were the religious leaders of the time. They were the chief priests. They were the captains of the temple's armed guard along with their soldiers and they were the elders of the people. Mark adds that they were the scribes, the lawyers, the experts of the scriptures. John describes this band as Pharisees and officers from the chief priests and a detachment of Roman soldiers. From a conservative estimate there would have been easily 500 or more men ranging from religious authorities to community leaders to Roman military all gathered to arrest Jesus that night. And most of them were armed. <laughs> the trials that came after the arrest. Trials plural. From approximately 2 a.m. to 10 a.m., Jesus was subjected to a total of six mock trials. Three were headed by Jewish religious leaders. The first one was before Annas, the former high priest and father-in-law to the current high priest. The second trial, the next one was under the jurisdiction of Caiaphas, the reigning high priest. And the third was in the presence of the entire Sanhedrin. The 71 Pharisees and Sadducees, the supreme court of the Jews. And in each of these, the sentence was execution. Rome. The Roman government also conducted three trials in that brief span of eight hours. Two by Pilate, one by Herod. And in each of these, it resulted in a verdict toward Jesus of not guilty. That was the verdict given. Not guilty. Then the beatings and the humiliation. During this custody of Jesus, evil began its assault upon the physical body of Christ, the God-man, in the most perverted and dehumanizing ways imaginable. According to the depraved, wicked nature of man and the influence of Satan, the enemy of God, these men restrained Jesus, mocked Jesus, and they mercilessly beat him. Matthew says, Then they spat in his face, and they beat him with their fists, and others slapped him. Luke in 22 says, Now the men who held Jesus mocked him and beat him, and having blindfolded him, they struck him on the face and asked him, saying, Prophesy, who is the one who struck you? And many other things they blasphemously spoke against him. Then in chapter 23, Then Herod, Herod, with his men of war, treated him with contempt and mocked him. And they arrayed him with a gorgeous robe. And they sent him back to Pilate. 
Mark says, Then the soldiers led him away into the hall called Praetorium, and they called together the whole garrison. And they clothed him with purple, and they twisted a crown of thorns and put it on his head, and they began to salute him. Hail, King of the Jews! And then they struck him on the head with a reed, and they spit on him, and bowing the knee, they, quote, worshipped him. And when they had mocked him, they took the purple off of him, put his own clothes on him, and led him out to crucify him. There was an offer of a substitute made, Barabbas. You see, in a last-ditch effort to get out of this contemptuous mockery of justice, Pilate attempts to invoke a practice that was used to set free one prisoner each year as a show of Roman kindness to the Jewish people. Now, Jesus was Pilate's candidate for release. But Mark writes that the chief priests stirred up the crowd so that he should rather release Barabbas to them. Pilate answered and said to them again, Well, what then do you want me to do with him who, called, who you call the king of the Jews? So they cried out again, Crucify him! And then Pilate said to them, Oh, why? What evil has he done? But they cried out all the more, Crucify him! So Pilate, wanting to gratify the crowd, released Barabbas to them. And he delivered Jesus after he had scourged him to be crucified. You see the multitude of layers of, of, of excruciating pain Christ went through. From being beaten to scourged to slapped. Thorns. And then death and burial. As James read earlier from John. They brutally crucified Jesus Christ. God in human flesh. God in human flesh was mercilessly murdered. At this point in the account of the life of Jesus Christ, all is lost. It is eternally hopeless. Think about this moment. These followers of Christ were not following now. They had deserted Him. They were full of fear. They were saturated with discouragement and depression. Their master had apparently been mastered by His foes. Jesus had been the victor in every arena. The synagogue, the temple, the streets of Jerusalem, the healings, raising dead men and children to life, feeding thousands, ruling even creation to stop a storm with a word and to walk on water. But now look at his body. His body lay limp, lifeless, bloodied, lacerated beyond recognition in a cold, dark stone tomb. These disciples are now simply a band of fearful fishermen, a tax collector, and a political activist who had scrambled into hiding. These were the defeated disciples of a dead man. They were not about to go out and make their shattered lives worse by trying to prop up some myth about their dead leader, by stealing his cold, stiff body out of the grave, and propagating a lie that he had somehow risen from the dead. That would be suicide under Rome's hand. Think of that moment. We think of situations around the world now. In Ukraine and Russia. And in some of the suburbs where death has reigned. And, or in North Korea where we have brothers and sisters 
in, in death camps there awaiting execution. Through history, Auschwitz, Pol Pot, different places where it was so much death and destruction and darkness that people were given up. It was hopeless. But there was hope still. But in this moment, in this moment when Jesus lay dead in, the, in that tomb, there was no hope. The only hope is dead and gone. You have nothing to rely on. We trusted Him. We believed in Him. And now He is gone. How did it come to this? Turn to Genesis chapter 3. Genesis 3 verse 1. Now the serpent was more cunning than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, As God indeed said, You shall not eat of every tree of the garden. And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat the fruit of the trees of the garden, but of the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God has said, You shall not eat it, nor shall you touch it, lest you die. And then the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die. For God knows that in the day you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the treasure was, that the tree was good for food, that it was pleasant to the eyes and a tree desirable to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. She also gave to her husband with her and he ate. And then the eyes of both of them were opened and they knew that they were naked and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves coverings. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. Then Adam and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. Then the Lord God called to Adam and said to him, Where are you? So he said, I heard your voice in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and I hid myself. And he said, Well, who told you that you were naked? And have you eaten from the tree of which I commanded you that you should not eat? Then the man said, The woman who you gave to be with me, she gave me of the tree, and I ate. And the Lord God said to the woman, What is this you have done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. So the Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, you are cursed more than all cattle, and more than every beast of the field. On your belly you shall go, and you shall eat dust all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise your head. And you shall bruise his heel. The devil had deceived. Man and woman had rebelled. And instantly an irreconcilable chasm had suddenly estranged man from God and the creator. It would never be like it was. And now a few thousand years later on the death of Christ the devil has deeply wounded the Messiah. From all appearances he has done far more than wound the Messiah's heel. And certainly Satan's head seemed by no means crushed on this day. He who had called himself the way, the truth, and the life lay dead and motionless in the grave. Then the wrath of God the wrath of God and the payment of sin hung like chains of iron upon the shoulders of every man, woman, and child. Isaiah wrote, But your iniquities have separated you from your God, and your sins have hidden His face from you so that He will not hear. 
Psalm 143 says, Do not enter into judgment with your servant, for in your sight no one living is righteous. That's what happened in the day in the garden. In the meantime, just in case followers of the Nazarene had any bright ideas, both the Jews and the Romans were committed to making sure there would be no illusion about Jesus' death. In the minds of the Jewish and Roman leadership, the resurrection, the pinnacle of Jesus' testimony, must be defeated. No possibility that Jesus was alive from the dead could be allowed. It would be disastrous to the enemies of Jesus if even just a rumor was spread that he had risen from the dead. Matthew records, on the next day, which followed the day of preparation, the chief priests and Pharisees gathered together to Pilate saying, Sir, remember, while he was still alive, how that deceiver said, After three days I will rise. Therefore command that the tomb be made secure until the third day, lest his disciples come by night and steal him away, and say to the people, He has risen from the dead. So the last deception will be worse than the first. And Pilate said to them, You have a guard, go your way. Make it as secure as you know how. So they went and made the tomb secure, sealing the stone and setting the guard. The first deception the Roman and Jewish leaders mentioned here was that Jesus claimed to be the Son of God. But that was not nearly as dangerous to their cause as a rumor that said Jesus was now risen from the dead. Matthew Henry said that which really they were afraid of was His resurrection. That which is most Christ's honor and His people's joy is most the terror of His enemies. Now isn't it convicting to see who remembered and who understood Jesus when He said after three days I will arise. It wasn't his mother. It wasn't his brothers or sisters. It wasn't the disciples that had been by his side for three years. Who was it? It was those who hated him and desired his death. That is the darkness of that day. Now what, I've asked Caleb if he would come and read now what happens from that moment on. Caleb. So John chapter 20, verses 1 through 20. We'll be reading from the ESV, starting verse 1 of John chapter 20. Now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early while it was still dark and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. So she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved. And said to them, They have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. So Peter went out with the other disciple, and they were going toward the tomb. Both of them were running together, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. And stooping to look in, he saw the linen cloths lying there, but he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came following him and went into the tomb. He saw the linen cloths lying there and the face cloth which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded up in a place by itself. Then the other disciple who had reached the tomb first also went in and he saw and believed. 
for as yet they did not understand the scripture that he must rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to their homes. But Mary stood weeping outside the tomb, and as she wept, she stooped to look into the tomb, and she saw two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had lain, one at the head and one at the feet. They said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, They have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. Having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing, but she did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned and said to him in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. Jesus said to her, Do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. But go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord, and that he had said these things to her. On the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews. Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. That last phrase in in verse 20 may be one of the greatest understatements in Scripture. Then they were glad when they saw the Lord. Everything was radically changed from that moment. What seemed like the darkest night the earth had ever known was suddenly split open with the light of Christ. It's the most wonderful thing we could ever imagine. And God has done it. And it is glorious. It's glorious throughout the universe, not just to our sight, but all creation sees this. And it's amazing. And this is the message we have to bring. Why... Why would anyone ever believe this kind of a thing? But it is the only hope. It is the only opportunity we have for eternal life. And it is packaged in the resurrection. In a world that's dominated by sin and death. The resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead was and is now the absolute necessity for hope. You see, the resurrection was prophesied and it was preached throughout the New Testament. Jesus preached his own resurrection. John the Baptist preached the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Peter preached the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Paul preached the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And Paul even wrote that everything he preached or wrote or did depended upon that truth. But such an important foundation would not go unnoticed or unchallenged by the enemy. Objections to the resurrection sprang up immediately. And they continue to this very day. During the past few weeks I've enjoyed several conversations with people that have centered around the gospel of Jesus Christ. In many of these, the resurrection of Jesus was really the underlying truth opposed. Now, someone listening in might have said, well, the disagreements were that Jesus didn't die on the cross 
or that he wasn't really the son of God, or that the scriptures are corrupt or mythical or the stories of mere men. But if Christ didn't rise from the grave, then his death on the cross was a cruel waste. His claims to be the Son of God were the foolish boasts of a madman. And the greatest portions of the Scripture, both Old and New Testament, are simply manipulative propaganda. But if he did come back to life from that tomb, then the life, death, burial, and resurrection of this man, known throughout history, globally, as Jesus, it fits together as a brilliant masterpiece of God. If it were a sham, there would be consequences. Deniers of Christ's resurrection were constant opponents of the Apostle Paul. He met their objections head on. And it's interesting how he did this. Not by downplaying the significance of the resurrection, just in case it wasn't provable. But by actually raising the stakes if the resurrection were a sham. Here's what he says in 1 Corinthians 15 verse 13. And as I read this, please, please pay careful attention. As I read this, I ask that you would note the consequences if Jesus' resurrection were not true. This is Paul's response to that. What would the consequences be if it were not true? And then maybe note them or underline them or put them in the margins of your Bible. Note them in your Bible or on the handout. I don't care. But pay attention. But if there be no resurrection of the dead, if that were the case, then is Christ not risen. And if Christ be not risen, then is our preaching in vain. And your faith is also vain. Yea, and we are found false witnesses of God. Because we have testified that God, of God that he raised up Christ, whom he raised not up, if so be that the dead rise not. For if the dead is not risen, for if Christ is not risen, then is not Christ raised. And if Christ be not raised, your faith is in vain. You are yet in your sins. Then they also which are fallen asleep in Christ are perished. If in this life only we have hope in Christ, we are of all men most miserable. And you may have found more, but, but when I looked at that, I saw at least seven consequences if there was no resurrection of the dead that Paul meets head on. If this is not true, everything's a loss. Some men, though, have foolishly said... Well, even if it turns out Jesus was not resurrected, it would be better to have followed his example of a humble, loving life than to live for my own selfish pleasure. Kind of a, a moralistic idea that, well, it still would have been better to follow him even though he didn't rise from the dead. That sounds noble. Paul says that was absurd. His life, his life depended upon the resurrection. In fact, his beaten and wounded body was steadily being destroyed because of his commitment to the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. In his letters to the believers in the city of Corinth, here is how he describes his ministry experience. I was keynote speaker at the Corinth Bible Conference for three days. 
I led a seven-day cruise in the Red Sea describing Moses' parting of the waters. Food was fabulous. Spent a week by myself up at Camp Tarsus to recoup and get some time alone with God. The cabins were really comfortable. Have several interviews this week for some of the major bloggers and online ministry sites. Hope to get some time away to work on my upcoming book to be published in about six months. Wrong description, isn't it? You know what Paul says? This is what he actually wrote. In far more labors, in far more imprisonments, beaten times without number, often in danger of death. Five times I received from the Jews 39 lashes. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I have spent in the deep. And I've been on frequent journeys in dangers from rivers, dangers from robbers, dangers from my countrymen, dangers from the Gentiles, dangers in the city, dangers in the wilderness, dangers on the sea, dangers among false brethren. I've been in labor and hardship through many sleepless nights, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure. And apart from such external things, there is a daily pressure of, on me of concern for all the churches. You see, prior to Paul's repentance and belief in Christ, he was the prominent religious leader of Israel. To give up the prestige, comfort, and wealth, and power in exchange for such pain and suffering that he just told us about, and then even to lead others in the same direction for the honor of a dead Jesus? What a fool Paul would have been. A pitiful, deluded, and useless fool. But, verse 20 of 1 Corinthians 15, but now Christ has been raised from the dead. The first fruits of those who are asleep. You see, just a little bit here on that word, but it's used as an adversative. What that means, it shows something in direct opposition to what had been stated. And then <coughs> it says, What had been stated before was if Christ is not resurrected. But now, even now, is a prolonged form of the word now to add emphasis. So what we're seeing is, but now the extreme opposite is the case. Christ is risen from the dead. Now, I want to take the last minutes and look into this treasure chest that lies before us called the resurrection of Christ. We open it and we see in there Jewels of all kinds, diamonds, opals, rubies, pearls, gold, silver. Treasures that God has given us in this thing called the resurrection. And we'll quickly go through these. First of all, the resurrection gives fulfillment to prophecy. And as James read earlier, we saw many prophecies fulfilled from Psalm 22, from uh, Psalm 69, from Zechariah 12, from Isaiah 53. These are fulfilled. But we're going to look at a few specific ones. What makes these four Old Testament prophecies powerful is that the New Testament interprets them for us. We are not making some calculated or hopeful interpretation. The New Testament explicitly says this is the fulfillment of each of these four prophecies. We'll begin with the first one. Psalm 2-7 says, I will surely tell of the decree of the Lord. He said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. 
We flip over to the New Testament, Acts chapter 13, which is where we will be in reading these fulfillments for a little bit. Verse 32, And we preach to you the good news of the promise made to the fathers, that God has fulfilled this promise to our children, and that He raised up Jesus. As it is also written in the second psalm, You are my son, today I have begotten you. The phrase, today I have begotten you, from Psalm 2, is referring to the resurrection of the Messiah, Jesus Christ, according to Acts 13. Prophecy in Isaiah 55, 3. Incline your ear and come unto me. Hear and your soul shall live. And I will make an everlasting covenant with you. Even the sure mercies of David. Acts 13.34 reads, And it's concerning that he raised him up from the dead, now no more to return to corruption. He said on this wise, I will give you the sure mercies of David. Again, the scriptures themselves explain to us that the sure mercies of David mentioned in Isaiah 55 is referring to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Psalm 16 verses 9 through 10. Therefore my heart is glad and my glory rejoices. My flesh also will dwell securely. For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol. Nor will you allow your Holy One to undergo decay. Acts 13, 35. Therefore he also says in another psalm. You will not allow your Holy One to undergo decay. For David after he had served the purpose of God in his own generation. He fell asleep. And was laid among his fathers and underwent decay. So did David. But he whom God raised did not undergo decay. Acts 13 explains you will not allow your Holy One to undergo decay. Found in Psalm 16. Means that Jesus' body would not suffer decay or decompose. Because he would be brought back to resurrected life. And the last one here. Acts 2, verses 32, excuse me, Psalm 110, verse 1. The Lord said unto my Lord, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. And Acts 2, verse 32. This Jesus God has raised up, of which we were all witnesses, therefore being exalted to the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he poured out this which you now see and hear. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he says himself, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. Once more, the scriptures give explanation showing that David's Lord points to this Jesus God raised up. It also appears in Hebrews chapter 1. Referring to Jesus as a son as well. But not only do we find it in the Old Testament. We find it in the New Testament. And we won't go through all of it. But let's look at what Jesus prophesied about himself. John 2. Then so the Jews answered and said to him. What sign do you show us? Since you do these things. Jesus answered and said to them. Destroy this temple in three days. I will raise it up. Then the Jews said. It has taken 46 years to build this temple. And will you raise it up in three days? But he was speaking of the temple of his body. Matthew 16. From that time Jesus began to show his, to his disciples. That he must go to Jerusalem. And suffer many things from the elders and chief priests. And scribes and be killed. And be raised the third day. And then Mark chapter 9. Then they departed from there and passed through Galilee. And he did not want anyone to know it. For he taught his disciples and said to them. The son of man is being betrayed into the hands of men. And they will kill him. And after he is killed. He will rise the third day. 
So the resurrection of Jesus Christ gives us a multitude of fulfilled prophecies. But the resurrection of Jesus Christ gives us the gift of the Holy Spirit. John 7, 39 says, But this he spoke concerning the Spirit, whom those believing in him would receive. For the Holy Spirit was not yet given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. He had not been raised from the dead in his body and with his glorified body. Acts 2.32 This Jesus God has raised up of which we are all witnesses. Therefore being exalted to the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit He poured out this which you now see and hear. If it were not for the resurrection we would not have the gift of the Holy Spirit. Thirdly, the resurrection gives faith to believe the word of God. John 2 Therefore when He had risen from the dead His disciples remembered that he had said this to them. And they believed the scripture and the word which Jesus had said. Fourth, the resurrection of Christ gives justification before God. Legally, forensically, we are made righteous before God. We are not held guilty for sin. The penalty is removed. Romans 4 23. Now it was not written for his sake, Abraham's alone, that it was imputed to him, but for us also to whom it shall be imputed. If we believe on him that raised up Jesus our Lord from the dead, who was delivered for our offenses, and was raised again, raised again for our justification. You see, Jesus was raised from the dead for our justification. In other words, because of the resurrection. Because of the resurrection, we are declared right before God. We are accepted by a holy, righteous king. I am justified because Christ's resurrection is God's confirmation that the debt of my sin has been paid in full. If Christ had not risen from the dead, it would have confirmed that the payment was not enough. More was needed. We would have been eternally shipwrecked in hopelessness if that had been the case. Martin Lloyd-Jones says the resurrection is a proclamation of the fact that God is fully and completely satisfied with the work that His Son did upon the cross. Sproul said the resurrection of Jesus is not simply for His vindication, it is for our justification because It is God's demonstration to His unjust people that He accepts the payment in full for the moral debt they have incurred. Then we read that and we know that and and I'm the same. But when I read that and realize that, I, I shouldn't be able to sit in my seat. We've heard some of this so many times. That the idea that we are justified before God, we have been made clean, that our sins have been paid for, becomes mundane, becomes routine. We are so dull to eternity. We are so dull to our sin and our depravity. But Christ's resurrection has taken care of every filthy thing you've ever done or said. Every lie, every lust, Every angry moment where you've bursted out and hurt somebody. Everything. Murder. Such were some of you. That's what this means. 
His, we are justified before God. How could that be? Only if Christ, the Son of God, the perfect Lamb, would take upon Himself our sin and make that payment. The resurrection of Christ gives us eternal life. Some of us assume that. But here's what the scripture said. Jesus said to her, to Mary, I am the resurrection and the life. He that believes in me, though he were dead, yet he shall live. And whoever lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? John 14, yet a little while and the world seeth me no more. But ye see me, because I live, ye shall live also. Romans 6, 4, therefore we were buried with him through baptism into death. That just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. For if we have been united together in the likeness of his death, certainly we also shall be in the likeness of his resurrection. The resurrection gives power to live for God. You cannot do it. You cannot do it. The resurrection, it says, gives us His power. Ephesians 1, And what is the exceeding greatness of His power to usward who believe? According to the working of His mighty power, which He wrought in Christ when He raised Him from the dead and set Him at His own right hand in the heavenly places. Philippians 3.10, Paul cries out that I may know Him and the power of His resurrection and the fellowship of His suffering being made conformable to His death. And it, this, this is one of the, of the very intimate, precious things. The resurrection of Christ gives intercession from Christ. Intercede means to bring a petition to a king or authority on behalf of someone else. That's Christ. Christ before the Father God is there on our behalf. He is our representative to God. He is the one who speaks to the Father in our defense. The resurrection gives confidence of Jesus' return in anticipation of our own glorified body. Philippians 3.20 For our citizenship is in heaven, from which also we eagerly wait for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform the body of our humble state in conformity with the body of His glory. Do you get that? You're weak, you're tired, you're sick, you're so limited. Soon, very soon, if your faith is in this one who is resurrected, and he is your Lord, your body will be something that you cannot even imagine. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain. You will be, you, the capacity you will have to know God and to glorify him will be, be beyond description. I couldn't describe it if I knew it. That awaits us. Number nine. The resurrection gives confirmation that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. Romans 1.3 Concerning His Son Jesus Christ our Lord who was born of the seed of David according to the flesh and declared to be the Son of God with power according to the spirit of holiness by the resurrection from the dead. Acts 13, God has fulfilled this for us, their children, and that he has raised up Jesus. As it is also written in the second psalm, you are my son, today I have begotten you. And then number 10, the resurrection of Jesus gives Christ the keys of hell and death. Revelation 1.18, 
Jesus says, I am he that liveth and was dead. And behold, I am alive forevermore. Amen. And have the keys of hell and of death. Now, perhaps that doesn't shake you up to know that without Christ, you don't have the key. But read, listen what he said in Luke 13. Jesus describes the utter terror of the locked door that only he can open. When once the master of the house has risen up and shut the door, then you begin to stand outside and knock at the door saying, Lord, Lord, open for us. And he will answer and say to you, I do not know you, where you are from. Then you will begin to say, Well, we ate and drank in your presence, and you taught in our streets. But he will say, I tell you, I do not know you, where you are from. Depart from me, all you workers of iniquity. There will be weeping and gnashing of teeth when you see Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all the prophets in the kingdom of God and yourselves thrust out. There's no middle ground. We talked last night with a guy who, who hoped that there was some resting place or middle ground. There is no middle ground. You either enter in in delight for eternity with the King of Kings or you are thrust out into utter darkness forever. And there's only one key and that key is in the hand of Jesus Christ. Number 11, the resurrection gives everlasting destruction to anyone who does not believe and does not obey the gospel of Christ. This is a dire warning. And it is expressed in 2 Thessalonians 1. Paul writes, Since it is a righteous thing with God to repay with tribulation those who trouble you, and to give you who are troubled rest with us when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with His mighty angels, in flaming fire, taking vengeance on those who do not know God, and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. Let me read that again. While we still can. Before it is classified as hate speech. And before men and women no longer hear this and go to hell. Because they were not given the warning. In flaming fire. Taking vengeance on those who do not know God. And on those who do not obey the gospel. Of our Lord Jesus Christ. There is one way truth and life. And it is through Jesus. And it is gracious. It is almighty. But if you refuse it. It says... Verse 9, these shall be punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of His power. When He comes in that day to be glorified in His saints and to be admired, admired among all those who believe because our testimony among you was believed. It is see, do you see that? There is a day. It has been set forth and it is coming. And there will be gnashing of teeth and weeping for eternity. And there will be joy and gladness for eternity. The last thing that I want to mention as a gift from the resurrection is the resurrection gives opportunity to proclaim or deny Christ. Matthew 28 verse 1 says, Now after the Sabbath... As it began to dawn toward the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary came to look at the grave. And behold, a severe earthquake had occurred, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled away the stone and sat upon it. And as his appearance was like lightning, and his clothing as white as snow. 
And the guards shook for fear of him and became like dead men. And the angel said to the women, Do not be afraid, for I know that you are looking for Jesus who has been crucified. He is not here, for he has risen just as he said. Come, see the place where he was lying. Go quickly and tell his disciples that he has risen from the dead. And behold, he is going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him. Behold, I have told you. Then they left the tomb quickly with fear and great joy and ran to report it to his disciples. And behold, Jesus met them and greeted them and they came up and took hold of his feet and worshipped him. Then Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. Go and take my word to my brethren to leave for Galilee and there they will see me. The faithful women the faithful women. This is pretty powerful. What happens here? These women witnessed the resurrected Lord Jesus. They reported the truth. It says they were taken with fear, but with great joy. And they obeyed quickly. And they worshiped the risen Jesus. But there are others at the tomb that we heard about. The Roman guards at the tomb. They were supplied by Pilate who they were present at the tomb as well. And it says that they were so terrified that they literally shook and they trembled with fear. Then they were struck with terror. And it says these guards became like dead men. They were not merely frozen with fear but completely unconscious. Apparently because of the trauma they witnessed. They eventually recovered consciousness however. And we read in Matthew 28... Now while they were going, behold, some of the guard came into the city and reported to the chief priests all the things that had happened. And when they had assembled with the elders and consulted together, they gave a large sum of money to the soldiers, saying, Tell them his disciples came at night and stole him away while we slept. And if this comes to the governor's ear, we will appease him and make you secure. So they took the money and did as they were instructed. And this saying is commonly reported among the Jews until this day. The guards at the temple, they witnessed the resurrection event. They reported the truth. They received a bribe and an implied threat. Money or death from the governor. So they told a lie. They suppressed the truth. And they obtained momentary security and eternal damnation. You see, the resurrection could not have been stopped through Satan and all of his demons and all of mankind, though they had gathered together in mass unity to defeat it. In Acts 2, we read, Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves also know. Him being delivered by the determined purpose and foreknowledge of God, you have taken by lawless hands, have crucified and put to death, whom God raised up, having loosed the pains of death, because it was not possible that he should be held by it. We go to Acts 4. 
For truly against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, were gathered together to do what their evil minds had decided. No, they were gathered together to do whatever your hand, Lord God, and your purpose determined before to be done. It could not be stopped. Acts 17 says, Truly these times of ignorance... God overlooked, but now commands all men everywhere to repent, because he has appointed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by the man whom he has ordained. He has given assurance of this to all by raising him from the dead. I want to close with Paul's words. In 1 Corinthians 15, 51. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep, but we will all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and we will change. This is not just figurative speech. It's not just things to keep us motivated for moving on. This day will happen. And it will be like no other day. For this perishable, this, this bag of bones, perishable, must put on the imperishable. And this mortal must put on immortality. Then will come about the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? It's like Paul is taunting it. With this truth. The sting of death is sin. And the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God. Who gives us the victory. Through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore my beloved brethren. Be steadfast and movable. Always abounding in the work of the Lord. Knowing that your toil. Is not in vain in the Lord. And that is as we close. Press on. Press on, for this day will arise. And this day would not even be possible if it were not for the day 2,000 years ago when Christ rose up out of that grave by the power of the Father, by the power of the Holy Spirit, through the power that He had over life to conquer the grave and have victory. And we have that victory. We have that victory. And it cannot be taken from us. But not all of you here have that victory. And so I call you to consider Christ and who he is and what he has done. Don't put it off. Why, why continue to march as a dead man toward hell when you can walk as a son or daughter of God by repenting of sin, leaving the old way, leaving your selfish way of life and turning and saying, I will follow the Son of God by his grace. Believe in him. Trust in him. Pray that we will, from this, this next week, that God will use us as men and women on fire for his cause. And for those of you who have continued to reject the Savior, please repent and follow. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we praise you and we thank you that death has no hold over you. I know that there's been dear ones to me and to everyone here, Lord, who have died they never resurrected. And they will not until you call those out of the grave who have trusted in you. 
But we thank you that you have the power of death over death and hell. And you give life. And in you is life. And the life was the light of men. And it says the light shines in the darkness, but the darkness did not comprehend it. Lord, please use us. Please use your servants here, ambassadors as we heard earlier this morning, to shine forth this message of Christ. Lord, the, the, sometimes the more I read about it, the more I, I see that the world can never, never accept this if it is not for your regenerating spirit to give men and women hearts to trust you. So we plead, Father, as your word tells us to, that men and women will be reconciled to you. Lord, use us. Shake us out of our dullness, out of our apathy, out of our, Lord, shake us out of our, the constriction of this life and everything that, that keeps us from being near to you and from proclaiming the gospel. Lord, sh- help us to shed those things while we have time to make Christ known and to glorify you. We praise you that you are a risen Savior. Amen.